We are here to uncover the good, the bad, and the ugly of the IT industry. My name is Robin Johns, and this is Convergence by Cato Networks. Hypergrowth, a term first described in a 2008 Harvard Business Review article, is a steep part of the S-curve that most young companies or startups experience at some point sorting winners from losers. Companies that are focused on this stage will need to overcome many challenges, from technological tools that are not scalable to hiring the right talent and capture as much of the market as possible. Today, we are hosting Mark Bain, Cato Network's Vice President of Sales Engineering. We'll talk about what makes a startup successful, how to build a sales engineering team in a company at a hypergrowth stage, and what is the career progression of such a team. Let's get started. Thank you for joining today. Thank you, Robin. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Now, before we get started with the meat and bones or the lentils and dal for all our vegan friends out there, let's talk about you. Your journey, Vice President of Sales Engineering. That's a very lofty title that a lot of people aspire to. How did you get to where you are today? Very interesting question. And honestly, I still don't feel like I am that kind of person, but it's great that I've moved into that role and I have the opportunity to influence and help the teams in, in the way that I can. But I guess it really just came from the fact that I've been involved in prior startups and gained that experience and joined Cato at a point where I really saw it in the really early evolution of the company where I understood what the challenges were, what we were trying to achieve, and then organically as the company's grown, I've wanted to add as much value as I could and had the opportunity to move into roles which would look at building the teams and, uh, you know, helping take Cato where we're going. I mean, it's an exciting journey and uh, it's been, I guess, years and years of various experiences in different roles to, uh, to reach the point where I feel very fortunate uh, to be in right now. So when did you join Cato? At what stage of the startup journey was it before you decided to hop on board? It was, I think, probably pretty early for me to have joined since I was the only individual in the UK. There was no sales individual. We had two other SEs on board at the time. So it was, it was actually the end of 2016. I think we had like 30 employees or so worldwide, most of them based out of Israel. And the company saw that there was an opportunity that UK was going to be important. And maybe even prior to putting in a sales rep into that location, that if we could leverage the relationships I had and the experience I had, build out the UK with a sales rep remote and have me help build out the SE team, then uh, that was the approach to take. And it worked pretty well. As I say, at that point, there was just three of us worldwide, and then it grew pretty quickly over the next few years. That sounds, no offense, incredibly risky, like a big challenge to make, going from a stable position to a small startup in which you're one of three global sales engineers. Now, how did you identify that Cato was the right role and the right job? Because there's hundreds of startup companies out there. What really attracted you towards Cato? So I was at a, an Israeli startup prior to Cato. I'd been there for nine and a half, going on 10 years. I joined that company at the point it was pre-IPO. It was slightly later stage to the point I joined Cato, but many of the same individuals. Shlomo Kramer was the CEO 
at Imperva. And, and I'd really enjoyed that experience of that pre-IPO and for a period of the time, the post-IPO period. But I knew I wanted to do another startup and I knew I loved working for Israeli organizations. I knew there were some very experienced visionary individuals that were going off and starting a, uh, a company only known as Cato at the time and stealth mode, no details. And yeah, I kept in contact. So I was hopeful that I might get an opportunity to uh, get into the company and wasn't worried at what level I was going to get involved. I just wanted to be involved in that stage again and add the value that I could. And uh, I was very fortunate, I feel very fortunate to have uh, got back into uh, a role which allowed me to grow and with a, with a company that's light years ahead of any other company I'd work <laughs> Indeed. I know we are very biased, but uh, I'm a nerd at heart. And looking at the technology, looking at how Cato operates is vastly, vastly different to other vendors out there. But we're not here to sell Cato. We're not here to push it forward. I would like to address something you just brought up, that you work for an Israeli startup, and now you're working for another Israeli startup. So what is it like to work with Israeli companies? I know they have different attitudes, beliefs, and work ethics to a lot of the other countries in the world. So what draws you towards this? So even prior to Imperva, the company before Cato, I was working for Nokia. And although Nokia was it's a Nordic organization and uh, very different to the experience working for an Israeli company, we were still working with Checkpoint very closely. So I, I got a, an insight to the work ethic and how the relations worked with Israeli employees. And I was told at that point, I remember quite clearly, they said, the Israelis are really hard to work with. They're challenging. They will give you an answer before you've asked the question. <laughs> and, and I was laughing and thinking, I can't be that bad. And honestly, when I first started working with Israelis on my first call, it just wasn't my experience. I loved it from day one, the directness, we got to the end goal. We got things achieved. The energy that was there, the work ethic, I loved it. So I more fell into Imperva rather than specifically wanting to work for an Israeli company. But from day one, the supportive nature of the team out of uh, Israel was just amazing. I think that I love security. It's always been my background. And security is the DNA of Israeli staff members. It's just built into them from day one. And I think, you know, that and the work ethic and the work rate and the agility at which they work, it just suits me. I love it. And I think that this is why we see so many successful startup companies coming out of Israel. They've just got the right attitude for it. So personally, very positive experiences, but I can appreciate why people would interpret their experiences in the way that you've described. Indeed. In case the listeners are wondering, myself and Mark, we're both British of some form. And the British culture and the British way of doing business is often not so direct. We would use 50 words when one would do. So for many, going to an Israeli company in which things are so direct can be seen as very jarring. If any of our listeners are thinking about moving into an Israeli-based company, are there any suggestions or tips that you would like to give them to help that ease of transition? Yeah, I think to have that expectation that culturally the approach might be different, but to interpret it in the way that it's intended. So I think that if an individual was to come 
a little too sensitively towards a meeting or an engagement with any other culture, but let's say with the Israeli individuals, then they could see it as you know quite a surprising interaction because of the energy, the debating that goes on, the challenging and the questioning. But the end result is that uh, more gets done and you know where you are. It's, it's a direct, clear relationship. Just take it for what it's intended to be rather than the initial shock of it being very different from the English approach. <laughs> How do you feel that working for an Israeli company has impacted your personal leadership style? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that probably it, it affects me in the sense that the way that I manage, the way I work with my manager definitely influences then my approach with my team. So for example, to turn it around slightly, the way that I am managed is that I'm given a very clear view of what's expected. If I complete a task or a project and it's not quite what was needed, then there's no dancing around the handbags and pretending it was all great when maybe something could be improved. It's very clear to me. I'm told this is what I need. This is a gap. Can you please kind of work on this area? And I love that because otherwise you never know what areas you've got to improve. Now I take that approach, not, you know, I'm not Israeli, so I'm going to take it with my English kind of uh, approach, but I will still be far more clear than I probably would have been if I'd only ever worked within an English organization. I'm, I'm more clear. I like to give direct feedback, but obviously always with a positive outlook of how things can be improved. But uh, I do appreciate and I've taken on board more of the direct nature of the uh, the conversations. I, I just feel that especially in a hyper growth organization, in a startup organization, the rate at which we grow doesn't support being slow about decisions and being unclear. You have to be clear if we want to keep moving at the rate we are. Indeed. When you're working in a business, being clear, being direct, having actionable outcomes and clear targets are fantastic and it helps you achieve much more. However, if you take that mentality, I know if I do and go home and start acting the same to my <laughs> wife and children, I just get told off and told to go away and sit in the shed for a little bit because I need to settle back into regular life instead of business life. But I love the term hypergrowth. Hypergrowth is a fantastic term. And hypergrowth can sometimes be seen as toxic to an organization, as if you grow quickly, if you don't scale accordingly, if you don't have that slow burn, it can cause a lot of friction and problems within a team. It can disrupt cultures. It can cause items that haven't been processed or proceduralized to break very, very rapidly. So to you, what is the hypergrowth stage and how did you build a sales engineering team to cope with those challenges? So. Hypergrowth is obviously a target for a pre-IPO company. It's where you want to be. But I like to make it very clear, especially when I'm talking to potentially new hires and individuals who have just recently joined, so candidates and, and new hires, that hypergrowth is great. It's where we are. It's where we want to be and where we want to continue to be. But it's not all roses. It's not achieved in a smooth, easy way. It's, it's achieved by ongoing challenges, continual challenges. And from a, uh, a micro level, when individuals go into a role, they have specific accountabilities, and they're really working hard in that focus, it's very easy to get disillusioned with the peaks and troughs. So 
the troughs are obviously the bits that could be perceived as the challenge and the peaks are very exciting, but you have to have the resilience. And, and I talk about this very often in interviews, not to try and scare people off, but just to set expectations that look from the outside at a company and it can have all of the metrics that show you're on top of the world and you're absolutely where you want it to be. But when you're working for such a company, that has been achieved by having the right people with the right service, the right timing, and the resilience to be able to weather those, those challenges and to take those challenges and say, right, that is part of that growth. How do we then overcome that? And how do we look at it from the point of where we are today needs to scale to a different type of company in a year's time? So it is a real shock for some individuals if they haven't been in a startup company before. And, and the other aspect that I, I often talk about is that the difference between working for a public established company compared to a startup is vast. And people generally accept that. They understand the work rate, the speed of change, that agility, it's very different. But what I try to also explain is that then if you look at the startups, there's the same distance between a successful startup and the average startup. And that is as vast as between a startup and an established company. So if they've got experience with a startup before, but it wasn't at the caliber that hypergrowth companies might be at, expect that it's another level of difference in terms of the work rate, the, the challenges and what could be perceived as issues that you have to overcome. But that's just the nature of being at that kind of level. So I truly believe that when we're looking at a hypergrowth company, when we're trying to build out an organization and here for me, the SE team in particular, I'm not just looking for the technical capabilities, but I'm looking for the right mindset. And that has to be someone who, I'll go back to the same term, resilient. They have to have the resilience. They have to be able to go through a period of time where everything seems to be going wrong for a period of time. And you just can't believe that how can a company that's doing so well, it feels like for me, everything's gone wrong for me, like for the last week or two or month or whatever. And be able to zoom out and look at it at a macro level, like, but how are we genuinely doing? And is this that is in front of me something that if I overcome, it's going to take us to the next level? And, and that, that mindset and that personality, it's something that I always look for. So when I'm having an interview, I'm expecting that they've already been validated for how technically capable they are. And then I'm looking for somebody who is enthusiastic, they've got the energy, but natural energy and enthusiasm, not forced, and that they look like they can be resilient through those periods, rather than somebody who's like, this wasn't what I expected, I'm gone. You know, it's like, get through that, be resilient, and the journey continues, and it's very exciting. So you're saying you look to hire talent that matches Cato's global backbone, which it's resilient, it has high availability, it has dynamic routing, it's adaptive, it's willing to change, and it's supportive throughout. It's uncanny. I like that. I like uncanny. That yeah. Uncanny. Uncanny. Almost like the employees live the life of the company. We are the backbone of the organization. We are, we are. As much as technology is great, if you don't have the people to support it and drive it, it doesn't happen and it doesn't work. And people are the lifeblood of the company until AI exceed us and make everything redundant. And we turn into handy dandy little flesh bags like the Matrix. But hey, that's hopefully I think 2026, 2027 plan. 
We've got time. It's a long-term strategy. It's a long-term strategy. It's on the roadmap somewhere. I know when I joined about two years ago, I think I was around the 140 employee mark. So it was relatively decent size and it's got bigger. And now I think we're touching around 700 employees. So in two years, we've really exploded. And I've seen that hyper growth. I've experienced the challenges when it comes from a startup company. And you've hit the nail right on the head. Some days, realistically, it's bad. And you think, oh, I've messed up. Things aren't moving in the right direction. But just like if you're stock trading, if you're in doubt, you zoom out. You might have lost 20% today, but you're 50% up over six months. But I'm not a financial advisor. Please don't trust me there. So when it comes to finding new talent to support the hypergrowth, how do you make sure that you don't accidentally hire rotten apples? Because it only takes one or two negative characters to disrupt the dynamic of a team. How do you source this talent? It is always difficult. And I think that there is a science to it. And then there is maybe a, an art to it as well. And I'm not saying that you know we get it right 100% of the time, but I think we're always learning. And it goes back a little bit to some of the points I made earlier about looking for the right personality when, when I'm getting to the interview piece. So if I take it from two angles, there's, there's one aspect which is bringing in new talent into the organization. In fact, I don't like the word talent because talent suggests you're born with it. I think it's you, you get it through, <laughs> through hard work. So Remember, talent is just interest pursued. That's all it is. There you go. There you go. Anybody can be talented if you put your mind at it. If you want to achieve something, you can. But this isn't a motivational seminar. We can save that for another episode. <laughs> next, next podcast. Um, yeah, so there, there is the, the bringing in new staff members into the organization. And then there's also growing the team into new roles within the organization. So if we take, first of all, the external hires, then there is what I think is the relatively easy process of validating whether the person has the experience we're looking for and the technical capabilities. That's actually all quite easy. And that's more the science part, I think. You know, it's, uh, it's easy to go through those steps and validate that. What I'm looking for is far more about the cultural aspect, see, really try and figure out how the person operates and in different situations. And at a very high level, I'm actually lo looking for nice people. It sounds so obvious, but I want a nice team. I, I like having nice people around us in Cato. And that is an important part of the cultural aspect that if someone is not forced in that way, but they're just naturally a, a nice person you would go out for a drink with, that is gonna be a big factor. Because everything else could be right, but if that isn't feeling quite on, then it's, as you say, it's going to pollute the water, as it were, and it does kind of feed negativity. So, so I'm looking for that, and that's, again, more of like the art side rather than it being a science. But what I am looking for is an individual that has more the self-starter approach. So as much as we will enable teams as they come in, as you very well know, you do an incredible job at this. We enable and give individuals the tools to be able to learn. I would want an individual that could say, that's brilliant. Thank you. I'll take all of that. By the way, if you didn't give me that, that's fine. I'd still manage. I would figure it out. I would learn it. I would break it. I'd fix it. I'd learn it. And I want that type of individual. I want the kind of individual that has the energy that we know is needed for a company that is in hyper growth and also the natural enthusiasm. So I've interviewed a lot of people who can say exactly the right things, but the tone might be relatively flat, which is fine for IBM, if that's where someone wants to go, <laughs> or, or BT. Ooh, 
Other vendors are available. <laughs> <laughs> it might be fine for a larger organization. But for us, we're up against more established companies who we need to beat in a competitive situation. We need to show the customer that we're not forced in our enthusiasm towards what we do, but we genuinely believe it. And it's natural because that that is infectious, that kind of enthusiasm and that energy. And, and I want to see that coming across in an interview. So I guess without dragging it out too much, it's the kind of self-starter, enthusiasm, the energy. And then finally, what I'm looking for is evidence that that individual is proactive. The worst case for me is to hire someone who is amazing at their job and they sit there waiting for the action to come to them, waiting for the task to be given to them, waiting for the baton to be handed to them. And then they do an amazing job, great, but they've been waiting. I want individuals that are thinking continually, almost minute by minute, what more can I be doing to try and move this on, to try and move that on? What can I do to contribute and proactively pushing themselves out there? So that's what I'm looking for when I'm hiring from external. And if we can get that kind of individual coming through a referral, trusted entity, that's obviously super important for us. Referrals have a lot of waiting, especially if they're referred by somebody who's trusted as well. So that helps a lot. So what is the biggest red flag in an interview? You meet somebody who can walk the walk, talk the talk, they're proactive, they're cheery, they're full of charisma. What's the red flag that can snatch glory away from them? I would say the number one red flag for me is no preparation. And I see it way too much that they might know their technology. They might be covering off a number of those attributes I mentioned. But if it's clear to me that they haven't gone through and looked at all of your amazing videos on YouTube and our website, if they haven't gone through our white papers, if they aren't starting to use our terminology and they don't know what I am fully aware is on our website because they haven't read it. That to me just tells me enough about their personality that I'm like, okay, so you're just opportunistic. You're turning up. You don't really know who we are. And when someone knows what it is we do, the natural excitement, if they get it, is clear. But that preparation, if that hasn't happened, it tells me everything I need to know about the way they work. So that's the biggest red flag for me, that if they haven't done their prep work, they don't know what, for example, SASE stands for. They don't know what our key value points are. You know, the things which are all on the website, if they don't know that, then that preparation doesn't work for me. Absolutely. I mean, always know your audience. If you're presenting to customers, prospects, or yourself towards an interview, you need to know your audience. You need to know the matter. The world is a stage. We all have a part to play. And if you haven't done that research, then it looks like you're not really interested and like you don't really care. If you don't care about your own job, how can you care about the interests of the company? It's a challenge. Now, as we look over the past few years, there has been hypergrowth, but there's also been one or two teeny tiny global pandemics, which may or may have not happened. I'm not sure if you're aware. Most of my time is spent stood behind a computer anyway, so everything's shutting down. I didn't really notice it. But during this time, there's been a lot of macroeconomic impact, and there's been a lot of discussion about the tech bubble being burst. So do you think hypergrowth is still relevant and applicable considering the directions the markets are currently headed? I think that it's probably not a prerequisite for a successful company, but if you still have it during that period, then I mean, no one's going to complain about that. So I think that um, there's no doubt an impact. And 
I think every organization one way or another has felt it. If you are working for an organization that is well aligned to overcome the kind of challenges that those economic situations are, are inflicting upon organizations, then, then great. I mean, for example, you know, you'll have seen certain web conferencing tools obviously went through the roof. You know, they went through an incredible period of growth. Other organizations, I mean, like here at Cato, we, we know that the type of service that we'll provide actually fits incredibly well, irrespective of the economic situation. Of course, what does happen, and I think this is always something that has to be expected, is that companies are a little more insecure about budgeting for projects and things such as those might be delayed unless they're seen as important to overcome the challenges that the economy is uh, is throwing at them. You know, part of what we do without going into, into our technology, but just at a high level, we have a broad set of capabilities and that converged capability has so many facets to it that irrespective of the situation, if a business wants to be running and profitably and wants to grow, then our type of service fits in very well with that. So I feel that we've been in a really strong position and uh, thankfully not felt the impact significantly. And in fact, it's, it's been, I hate to say it, but positive in many ways for us. But yeah, going back to your point, I think hypergrowth shouldn't necessarily be an expectation for a successful company, but if you've got it, then great, flaunt it. (laughs) (laughs) Expectations are something that should easily be managed. You should understand your strengths, your weaknesses, and lean into them. So for some companies, the pandemic has been beneficial. For others, it's been very detrimental. But only by knowing what you have can you make that accurate decision and really drive your business towards that way. Knowledge is the most important tool we have. Now, if you were to teleport through a magic portal, which somehow appeared next to you, and you went back in time to see young Mark Bain, who is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to hit the IT space, what piece of advice would you give him? What do you know now you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Oh, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I think that, first of all, I'm pretty comfortable with the decisions I've made on the whole. I think that uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. But with the, the benefit of hindsight, I would say that probably in some organizations where I'd moved into management, then being in positions where decisions for the first time I ha- I had to be made about how to grow a team and um, you know how to handle a team. I would say that there is an element where it's very easy to wait too long to make decisions. But very often people have enough information early enough to make a decision, but hold out because they think something's going to change. So I would say that my approach would be to act upon the right level of information sooner rather than later. And the reason I say that is not because I intentionally would have delayed in the past or just not wanted to act upon something, but that I wouldn't have had the experience at the time to know what can be changed and what can't be changed. And I think what I have learned now is that very often information is available to you early enough that you can make decisions earlier. And and that for everything in your own life, in the company's growth, that just has a compound effect of moving things forward quicker. I mean, if I look at it from, it would 
maybe appear to be almost like a negative example, but it's, I think, a really valid one for most organizations. You're never going to have a workforce that every single member is the right member. And I feel that it's very easy to, to continue on with an approach, with a team, with individuals, far longer than maybe is appropriate. And, and it applies to everything I find throughout the whole work life that decisions can generally be made pretty quickly. And the difference between a hyper growth startup company is that you're often forced into the position where you have to make decisions quickly and get the right information up front. And actually, I think it forces a positive approach. Whereas when you're with a large organization where things move more slowly, part of the reason they're moving slowly is because they've gone into that mindset of, well, we just wait longer. Let's get more information before we make decisions, decisions by committee and giving ownership to people to make decisions, I think, um, and make them fast is something that I would probably have changed. It it may be a, a strange example, but I do feel that that would have definitely made my life a lot easier and I would have moved forward quicker with things if I'd uh, taken that approach. Everything we do in the corporate world impacts our personal world. So you need to be bold, you need to be brave, you need to take those risks, but like a good game of poker, you also need to know when to hold them, when to fold them, cut your losses and move on. I like it. (laughs) So thank you for your time today, Mark. You have given me lots of very useful bits of information and it feels like my brain has hyper-grown throughout the past 20 minutes or so. So thank you very much for sharing your opinions. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. It's been uh, very enjoyable. That was all for our episode today. I hope you've come away feeling a little more educated and empowered. In case you've forgotten, I'm Robin Johns, and you've been listening to Convergence by Cato Networks. Don't forget to hit subscribe, and I'll see you next time.